0: I'm Malka Fleischman, and you're listening to The Shape of Faith, a podcast about love and religion and the faith that brings them to life. Tonight, I'm sitting down for a talk with one of my heroes um, and one of my most beloved teachers and role models, Reverend Chaz Howard. Uh, so thanks for coming. Um, I'm just, I'm just delighted to have you. It's
1: My joy to be here. And one of the, one of the gifts of life is when one's students become their teachers. Yeah. Oh. I've enjoyed uh, reading what you've been writing over the last couple of years and now listening to to your wisdom via this very cool podcast.
0: Well, thank you. Um, So I'm going to introduce you to our audience. So the Reverend Charles Chaz Lattimore Howard, PhD, is the university chaplain and the vice president for social equity and community at the University of Pennsylvania, his alma mater. He has served in both hospital and hospice chaplaincies and as a street outreach worker to individuals experiencing homelessness in Philadelphia. His writing has been featured in such publications as Black Theology, An International Journal, Daily Good, Sojourner's Magazine, Christianity, Today's Leadership Journal, Chronicle of Higher Education, The Huffington Post, The Christian Century, The Philadelphia Inquirer, The Forward, and Slate. He is the author of five books, including most recently, Pond, River, Ocean Rain, a collection of brief essays about going deeper with God, and the forthcoming, The Bottom, A Theopoetic of the Streets. A son of Baltimore and a godson of Philadelphia, he shares life with his beloved wife, Dr. Leah C. Howard, and their three daughters. So that's—I mean, there's there's been a lot in, in in not in not such a long time on this earth, a lot accomplished. So
1: thank you. Keep telling me the the not so long time on this earth. I appreciate that part. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so yeah, I mean, I just I really do want to say thank you for being here, and and I wanted to let the listeners know that. Um, to me, this is such a special recording, maybe the most special so far, and, and probably will be throughout the duration of this podcast, because I don't I think if it weren't for you, I, I really doubt I would have launched this podcast at all. Mm. Um, because you were, you know, in large part the reason I became so very enmeshed in interfaith work during my time as an undergraduate. And it was your leadership and your support that were You know, largely responsible for my pursuit of a master's in comparative theology and my going to divinity school. And then, you know, on top of all of that, there, I just have so many memories of struggle at Penn um, as I, you know, wrestled with the adult world and my place in it. And those memories are accompanied by memories of your chaplaincy and you're taking me through some of those really difficult times and inspiring me with your work, and, and our service trip to New Orleans, and Interfaith Weekend Retreats, and and your teaching in the Intercultural Awareness Seminar, and, and that was one of the most transformative classes I took during my time at Penn. So, all of that is to say that I, I really feel like your being on this podcast is, it's, it sort of feels cosmically ordained, and it feels somehow like I'm, I'm coming full circle. Mm-hmm. So, it's really, it's just special on this end. You know, for sure. My
1: heart, you warm my heart with uh with all that you say and, and and I think you give me too much credit. I mean, I think you were on this trajectory uh from the moment I met you, you know. I mean, I think you um you you glow with a wisdom and a a passion and a joy for life that I think glorifies the divine, but also changes lives, you know. You are a leader as a student there, you, you sort of led the interfaith community You're a leader in the Jewish community. And, um, I, I am, was merely a cheerleader, you know, like it's, it, it's, it's like giving a, a, one of the coaches or one of the, the fans credit for a championship won. Like I, 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 I've got a ring cause you won the championship for us, you know, so like it's.
0: Well, we're going to have to agree to disagree on who was more responsible, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, maybe maybe it's cheerleading on both sides, but but that's the power of cheerleading, I guess. Um, so um, so you know, it's hard to know where to begin with you because there's so much ground I'd like to cover. Um, you know, there's your relationship to religion and love as a as a campus professional, as clergy, and as a private citizen, as a late. You know, so there's there's just so many contours for us to examine. But I thought we'd start. Um, just if you can take us back in time and sort of trace um the presence of faith and christianity in your life you know how largely did those figure in your childhood and in your childhood home and i guess I'm, i'm curious about whether god was an early presence in your life and and if so was that a consistent presence or did things wax and wane for you over the years
1: it's a rich question and i think i'll answer it two different ways i think i certainly grew up in a family that um, was very prayerful um, in which the kind of paramount aspect of our journey together was sort of loving god and being a person of faith um yet my you know you know much of my story both my parents died when i was young and so my older sister took me in and I was 11 and she was 23 or 24.
2: Um,
1: and and so that was sort of a marked change in my faith journey in that um, no longer were we kind of going to church, but my sister sort of really made sure that I studied scripture a lot and that I prayed every night, even when I was like a 18 year old senior in high school, say prayers, you know, get on your knees and say, like, okay, all right, you know. Um, and, and then, I go to college. The other way to tell that story though, was that um, I always felt kind of a presence around me. And I, I, I sort of have some old like diary journal stuff where some of the stuff I'm writing about is this kind of clarity that everything's gonna be okay. and that And that didn't necessarily happen in prayer and that didn't necessarily happen in kind of worship. It was just kind of like just coming upon of this presence that was outside of me that everything ultimately will be all right in the universe and in time. And it was a feeling less of certainty, more of a love. Um, and I kind of I hold on to that as an adult. It's far far more fleeting now as an, as an adult as opposed to. It was kind of like sweet like butterfly divine landings when I was a kid. Um, and that's very different than kind of like a Sunday school um, or um, like, a, like, a, like a proper religious preparation for some kind of ceremony. It's that kind of beyond words experience. Um, and then when I was in college, I think I had a very college journey where I was kind of in a frat and involved in different things. I was an athlete for a little bit and, you know, dated and partied a little, partied, party too much, probably. Um, <laughs> and then toward the end of college was pulled back to my path. Um,
0: so, so, yeah. And, and how exactly did that happen towards the end of college? Because I, I know you write about it in your book a little bit, um, but for people who haven't yet read it, you know, what do you think, um, what do you think that tide, the, the changing of the tide was about there?
1: It's a beautiful metaphor you use, changing of the tide. I, 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 the way I usually say it is that the bottom kind of fell out for me after my junior year, right. where um, I was kind of thought I was going to politics, like local, I, I thought I was gonna be like a staffer for some city council person. And like the dream was to like be mayor of Baltimore or something like that. And
2: uh-huh.
1: out of a rough a series of things happened where I had a bad internship with someone that kind of made me really question that whole vocational path. Um, I got kicked out of college for bad grades. I got bad grades because I was drinking too much. Um, in that same moment, I got dumped by the person I, I was dating and kind of thought I was going to marry.
2: Um,
1: right. And like the grief of my parents' loss kind of caught up with me. And this is all within the span of a month or two and it was at that low point where i think i finally cried out like help and what do you want me to do because you know, every choice i'm making doesn't seem to be the, the move and i had one of those like landings again of everything's going to be okay and i'm with you and the next move is to go to, to seminary And I think I, I I think it was sort of this, this mutual feeling called also wanting to kind of give my life to, to God and to spreading love in various ways. And then things like almost overnight, things started falling into place. You know, this is back in 99 Mm -hmm. and, you know, I had a conversation with my chaplain back then and a couple other advisors on campus and they, made calls for me to help me retake some tests and kind of get back in school. Long story short, so I didn't end up, I ended up missing a summer. I didn't miss any real time. Uh, I sort of felt called to a new vocational path. And I uh, went to AA and um, got clean, haven't had a drink in, gosh, 21 years now. And and then weirdly met my future wife, like <laughs> right after that, you know, my my senior year. Didn't know she's my future wife yet, but. And, uh, I, I I know she didn't know I was her future husband certainly <laughs> and and the rest is kind of history
0: right um, you know I, and and listening to you talk about it it, it sort of brings me um, very easily to my next question you know I, I most of the guests that I have on here um, for them mm-hmm. I work to draw connections between the love in their lives and the faith in their lives to some to to sort of Form a coherent narrative. And I feel like with you, um, those two things have always been bound up in each other. And you talk about love when you're talking about faith. Um, and, you know, in your book, when you write about your parents passing, and you're turning to God around that time, and just now, as you've mentioned it, it feels like, it feels like love and faith are somehow inextricably tied for you. Um, and I guess, I guess i'm I'm wondering, both in that moment and and in general, you know, is it in moments where you're feeling an absence of love that you draw close to God um, you know and and God becomes more palpable for you, or would you articulate it differently? Do you think they're always sort of somehow working together and and present in abundance? How does it feel for you
1: it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think the parallel I would use would be in in a far smaller way, but kind of human love. I think that um, in so many ways, human love can reflect kind of divine love. And uh, to me, I guess the example I, I think about is my brother, um, who is in, in the moments where I'm feeling low, where I feel like I need someone. Uh, my brother's name is Chucky. Chucky kind of like orbits around and is there to pick up his kid brother. And and I feel that love in, in, in the same way that I've experienced that with God, where like low point divine loves infused and takes care of me. At the same time with my with my brother, like he lives in California and sometimes I, I only get to see him once a year in usual normal times. Right. And we're, when we're together, like we're hanging, we laugh a lot, we tell a lot of jokes, we used to play basketball, like all that kind of stuff. And I also feel that deep love in the high moments all that to say, I, I don't think that it's more, I don't experience God more in the moments of need than I do in the moments of ecstasy. Right. I think it's sort of the same love that hits me in a different way at a different time, but it's I, I still feel it in, in highs and lows.
0: Right, right. I like that, the, the need and ecstasy uh, sort of polarity. I think those are sort of beautiful words to, to choose to describe that. Um, And I guess, you know, to to dial it back to what you were talking about just a few minutes ago, um, you know, this moment of uh, this sort of depression, this low point, this moment when you heard this call, I think whenever people encounter clergy, chaplains, you know, they want to know, was this the plan all along or was there some sort of like epiphanic moment? Um, And-
1: Great word there, by the way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so so, you know, I guess, you've sort of described it as this call at, at all of a sudden, but were there moments before that when you envisioned yourself going to seminary, you know, was it, was it ever a small voice inside you that just got louder at a certain point?
1: Yeah. You know, I, my sister and my siblings talk about that when I was younger, I, um, imagined being like a preacher kind of thing. And I think I was always drawn to figures whose faith was lived out in public. So like religious figures who served outside the walls of a congregation. Right. And so, so the Kings, um, the Heschel's, the Adam Clayton Powell's, um, Malcolm, those kind of people who preached and taught, but also marched and sort of served that person was always, um, kind of a model for me, kind of a mentor in my head in a sense. Uh, yet I wouldn't have called it a calling when I would joke. I think it was like the kind of person I was drawn toward, um, but calls are a funny thing. You know I mean? I think I, I think there are a lot of us who kind of wait for, you know, sort of God to tear into reality and, you know, write something in the clouds and have like a burning bush, like unmistakable, I am God. This is your calling on, this is the calling on your life. This is it. You know? Um, and I think that that does happen for some people. And yet other times, the, the calling is kind of within one's heart and like a desire to follow that path. And And, and maybe it's similar to the, I don't know, um, kind of a romantic relationship where sometimes it's like love at first sight. And I was smitten the day I met them. And like, I, I feel called to marry you. And like, you know, and others are like, I'm, I'm choosing. I like you. I'm choosing you. And you know, that doesn't, I'm not crying. And like, this doesn't, but like, this seems to be the best choice. Right. And, and neither is more holy. In, in, in fact, the, the person who's choosing um, might even have a, have a deeper thing in it. I mean, I think there's something, um, I, I think there's something stupid about me or like I need big dreams and big signs to like, oh, okay, now I hear you, as opposed to like the, the whisper, right? The kind of like still small voice, Yeah. I I miss that a lot. Like I need big boom, burning fire, seize party. Like I need a whole lot of that kind of of stuff.
0: Right. No. And that's, that's a really interesting, uh, there are a few things I want to pick up on there. So one of the, you know, that's really this, this piece about the still small voice, you know, um, I think a lot about that and in education and, and trying to train people uh, to listen to the voices inside of them, you know, Glennon, uh,
1: Glennon sorry.
0: Glennon Doyle. Or? Yeah. Glennon Doyle. Um, she has a great, she wrote so beautifully. I think it was for her 40th birthday. She posted somewhere, maybe it was on all the social media platforms. And she said that at some point she stopped asking other people for directions to places only she's going and only she has to go, you know, and I just, that really, that hit me hard. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And I've kept it with me. And I think, it's one of the greatest gifts you can give as an educator is to sort of train young people to hear the voices inside of them and to have the expectation that lifelong those voices will be at points quieter and at points much more uh, just a lot louder and a lot more bombastic and you know and and there there might be some some vacillation in, in that in that way. Um, so I do i I really appreciate that and the idea that they're both holy um however however you're hearing them you know sure. for sure the volume um and the other thing that i wanted to pick up on is what you were saying about uh you know preachers outside of congregations um because you know I, I was talking earlier today with someone about meeting you know this this principle in education the idea of meeting learners where they find themselves right. and I think about that you know there is there is a lot of gratification in being in a house of God or a house of worship and preaching to the choir and then there's um, I think there are people who who want to be in the streets and who because they know that there will be a diversity of learners in the streets that just won't won't be in the house of worship yes. um,
1: You know who messed me up with that in a good way Yeah um, a woman named Debbie Little Wyman. She uh, she was a street. She described herself as a street priest, and she, I mean, she's a whole wonderful story that can kind of go on a long tangent. She used to work at Harvard, okay, um, and then felt a call, kind of late career, mid to late career, to ministry. It goes through seminary, does the whole thing, and then gets ordained, and says she wants to start a congregation outside in Boston Commons, mm. there, and does it, and like every weekend. And like a midweek study, like had gatherings with congregations that were essentially of unhoused people, Um, and it was beautiful. And like it was like church. I mean, they preached, they had rituals, they celebrated holidays, they had like baptisms, Um, they also like had meals together. And and a part of it was like she wanted her ministry to look a little bit more like, uh, in her words, Jesus's ministry. Mm. But she's also like there are there's wisdom outside, There are there's love, there's stories, um, and and it was beautiful. And her, I mean, to not tangent too long, but there now there are like several hundred of these street churches modeled off of what she called Common Cathedral based on Boston Commons all around the world.
0: Right.
1: And it's just a beautiful, humble kind of movement. It's really dope.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, and I, I think I there's so many pieces of that that I love, but you know one of those is that I think that sometimes these places of higher learning or places of worship can feel inaccessible to people who don't feel deeply literate in 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 whatever it is, whether it's a field of study or the religion itself. Um, and so, you know when you take it outside of those walls, um, there's there's greater access. People feel, License to, to participate. Um, So I think, I think that's so cool. Um, So I wanted to ask you about, you know, you've worked in hospital, you've worked in hospice chaplaincy, you've worked with the homeless and you work now in this resource rich, vibrant university community. So those are very different contexts and they're filled with people who are struggling in very different ways. I would think. Um, so I guess what I'm wondering is, does God look different in all those places, and and um, and does faith look different? And you know, do people come to you with radically different needs, um, or is there, you know, a basic thread pertaining to religion that runs through people's lives as they struggle, regardless of the the density and the shape of their struggles?
1: Mm. Good question, asker. Um, <laughs> I th- I think I want to say. I think I want to answer in two different directions. I think the first one would be, uh, people are people, right? You know, and there are there's joy and anxiety and sadness and grief and adventure like everywhere in all stages of life in all spaces in life and. Um. And that's true. And, I mean, and I think I've, I've had to say goodbye to people in all those. Um, certainly, hospital, and hospice, more.
2: Right.
1: I've done weddings for people in all those. Um, I've laughed about like hilarity in in, in in hospice and on campus, and I've I've grieved like all of the sort of the full spectrum of human emotion I've felt, in every single um, location of ministry, be it. You know in a congregation or hospital hospice street college midlife kind of stuff whatever and yet there is something to be said about the different seasons of life and the different emphases and the different um i don't know wisdoms and and different giftings might be a better term in in each season so you know sitting bedside with someone on hospice who is a grandparent and has seen some things. Right. Uh, God doesn't look different, but one's faith is different. Mm. The, the, the person who's, who's ready, who, who's, who's ready to fall into the arms of the divine. Um, there was a courage there, there was a freedom there um, that's hard to describe, uh, but is as is, is beautiful, as heavy as it is. Um, and there's the potential for, it sounds sort of very grim, um, but a beautiful transition. Right. I don't think any of the transitions in college are beautiful. They are, every single one has been tragic and, you know, I've, I've buried innumerable students over the years. Um, and they're all utterly heartbreaking and all are very unique circumstances. Um, yet the other aspect of sort of college ministry is there is a kind of forward looking and excitement, albeit with a nervousness about life and the future and what awaits on the other side of graduation. You know, particularly at a place like, like our alma mater where you know students have like ideas for days and like, I got it. Figure out how we're going to sort of solve this major world problem, and like all I need is and like that very entrep- entrepreneurial, but also like wonderfully passionate um, energy. Yeah, is great. Yet, the literally a brain isn't fully formed for like our, our teenagers and our freshmen, and so you have the kind of knucklehead decision making of you know it'd be cool. What if we drive to Florida tonight and try to get back by Monday? And like okay. Uh-huh that the average 50 year olds in a congregation that i deal with just don't have to um, so all that to say like there are consistencies in every season of life in every space but there really are different colors in each of them as well and different beauties and different struggles um, and all and 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 they're all i cherish each of those situations i've been in
0: and when it comes to the college students, and when they come to you and struggle, do you find that they, more than any of the other populations with whom you've worked, um, come to you struggling with love, struggling when it comes to relationships? I know, I mean, I'm projecting, but I know that was most often what I wanted to discuss was how the love in my life was struggling against my religious sensibilities. Um, so, Yeah. I I wonder, is that a time when love just feels complicated and is sort of simmering at the surface for them?
1: It's a great question. I mean, I think so much of college is figuring out who we are. Um, Like, you know, our identity um, in our faith, in our race, in our gender, in our sexuality, and like our politics and all that is who am I? What do I believe about myself? What do I believe about the world? I, I think it's true around love as well in that a big part of college is figuring out what love is and what and who do I love and am I loved? And some of that learning happens by like bumping our head against the wall and having a heart broken. And um, much of that learning is sort of learning what it looks like to love someone. Um, And so it's that's not to say a college student doesn't know what love is and doesn't sort of couldn't articulate that but the the parallel I'll give is you know you think about a, a grandparent who has loved multiple generations of her family mm-hmm. or or someone who has stacked up decades of loving their country or their people or others there's a different understanding of what love is there than a ten-year-old right who um, and not that a ten-year-old can't love or know what the difference between love and like. But if if you ask my kids like what they love, they'll say like they love Ariana Grande, like they they love Starbucks, like they they, they love the Philadelphia Eagles. Like, um, but but if I ask them to like, what does it mean for two people to love each other?
2: Right.
1: It'd be hard for them to articulate that.
2: Right.
1: It's hard to be clear. It's hard for anyone to articulate that. But I think they are we get closer and closer. I think the the more we have loved and the more we have been loved.
0: Right. I, I am so struck by what you're saying when you said, you know, someone who's loved multiple generations or loved through multiple generations and, 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 and thinking about people who have, who have experienced love and given love through multiple eras of, you know, a nation's history or something, you know, it's like, I, I've never thought about it in those terms. And, and it's, it uh, you know it raises for me questions about the relationship between time and and skillfulness and love and um, I just think that's that's so fascinating. Um,
1: I think of it think of it this way too like I a a child I think um, innately just loves a parent right and not just because like you feed me and clothe me and like play with me but there's there's something there's a bond there and I think you see this throughout nature like there is an automatic um, draw to family. But the example i give so, my middle daughter, you hate that I'm telling this story, but I, I'll leave the details out. She got in a lot of trouble this week. Mm-hmm. Like She just did two really knucklehead, brain not formed things <laughs> um, and, uh, and kind of confessed them and felt like hey, there's no way you could love me for what I did.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And to see my wife, like, pull her in, both of them crying. And to hear her say, there's nothing you can do to make me love you any more or any less. It was like the concept of what love is just expanded in my 14-year-old because of the grace of a parent. You know, like, so she knew mom loves her. And, like, no matter what, and, like, is never going to, like, kick her out. And, you know, (laughs) you're dead to me. Like, that's not going to happen. But to sort of now, she says, like I see a different level of love that just like no matter what I've got you love that she didn't understand four years ago. And there are depths of love that like she still hasn't plumbed, you know? Or I mean, the, the experience of, of of kind of growing old and having people still love one another even though like they're not you know the the beautiful 20-somethings like they once were um,
2: right.
1: or you I might mean, see this at penn for the like 40 year old 40-year employee who isn't contributing a ton to like the mission of the organization um but is still loved right and still invited to stuff even though they kind of ranty and kind of you know like to sort of feel loved when you're not bringing a lot to the squad like that, that mm-hmm. I hope they love me like that, that when I'm kind of like a curmudgeonly old grump who's just still collecting basketball tickets like I hope they're not they don't put me out <laughs> like i hope they that's great Chaz. sure okay right like, so I' think lo- love um love unfolds like i think like a like a lotus you know coming out like it's sort of like slowly kind of opens up beautiful ways petal by petal over time, yeah. I don't know, and, and, and to kind of you know, throw the needle here. I think it's true with with the divine. Like, on this side, we never master it. Right. Like we never fully comprehend the vastness of God's love. But little by little, I think we we see a little bit more, a little little bit more. I mean, I think about um, was it Moses who gets a glimpse? of 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 god passing by
3: think.
2: Mm-hmm. Like,
1: wow and, and and that's overwhelming right that is overwhelming you know mm-hmm. no no it's it's elijah excuse me who sort of just gets a little bit of a glimpse like it's, i'm mixing up my old testament prof, my torah prophets but
0: <laughs> i'm you know as you're talking i'm thinking about how in recent years probably because and i think this is often what happens you know we life becomes more and more difficult, less black and white. Um, and the pains that we have to endure and some of the really challenging experiences, they they kind of worm their way into your into your spirit and into the work that you do in the world. And in my case, I find as I get older, I feel more and more concerned with the person I'm loving. Which should be obvious. That should be really obvious. But I guess when I was younger, I was really wrapped up in how I was being loved, um, and having having been loved poorly at points, I just never want to be the person who's is, who's is responsible for that, for that, uh, you know, that sort of meager um, and and insufficient love.
3: Mm.
0: Uh, so I, I I do think about that. Um, okay. Anyway, I um I want to talk about something you wrote in your book. It's very early on in the book, um, but it hit me. I underlined it when I first read when I first read it, and you said, "There's grace in telling stories," and I just it's so it's such a it's such a pithy but uh, I think really abundant articulation of something really profound. And I wonder if you can delve a little more deeply into what that means for you on a theological level and how that principle figures in your work. Because I would imagine it figures pretty prominently, you know, uh, the telling of stories. Um, But I'm wondering how it guides you.
1: I mean, I think that there's, uh, it's so much a part of our religious traditions, you know. I think that very often people, when they think about formal religion, they think about like what to do and what not to do and like these are the rules and if you obey these rules you'll get in if you mess up on these rules like you're out you know right and yet so much of the beauty that captures the imagination of us while we're growing up is hearing the story about like a kid who has this sort of big giant talking trash over there and the kid finds a little stone and like miracle of miracles hurls it over there and like david and goliath Right, and you know what, kids? You too will have giants in your life that you need to conquer. And like, wow, like that's great. Or you know, stories of heartbreak in in scripture, or stories of creation being good, right?
2: Um,
1: or, or stories of freedom and liberation, and God caring about us when we are sort of under oppression. There is a grace in hearing someone else who's, to make it very real, who's felt uh, the knee of oppression on their neck. Mm um there is grace in in hearing the story of like you know uh, someone else struggled with addiction before and made it through that's why i think it's so important for us to tell our stories not just because that's where we come from tradition wise but because when others sort of hear our stories they can also hear our shortcomings and our failures and realize like hey i'm i'm not the the only one who's sort of struggled
2: right
1: they can also hear stories of triumph and grace and rescue um, they can also like learn hard lessons of like this is not the move, and I you know tough love scared straight. Let me let me let me tell you, you don't want to end up in here with me, kid. Like, <laughs> stay you with. Know. Um, I just think it's important. I think stories are important, which is why I think that it's part of the beauty of this podcast is like people can listen to stories and and people wrestling over theological stuff, and you know it's it's a very fascinating way that religion i think at its best is communicated is through story and to sort of you know add on and through the love that comes with telling stories to people
2: we love
0: right yeah oh i like that the love that comes with yeah because there is um there is a you know a lift sometimes a heavy lift on the part of the storyteller and the listener um and so you you really have to you really have to want to sit with someone else, want to be in someone else's presence and and, and remain there to, to absorb that person's story. And yeah. I think especially now, I'm, you know, and I do have a question, you know, that I want to ask you a little bit later about this, but I do think especially now, there just there's so much noise in this country. And when there's that much noise, it feels to me like there are people who are desperate to be heard and desperate to tell stories and, uh, and telling stories when people aren't listening, just, it just isn't, um, isn't therapeutic enough and it isn't helpful enough. And it isn't, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't give people what they need, which is to, I think, overcome their loneliness and also make their loneliness and alienation, um, known just, just to make it known. Um,
1: such a great point, and that like the, the other aspect of the grace around stories is there's a like you said there's a grace in listening to people's stories. Yeah. Um, I heard a, a phrase today that I embarrassed I'd never heard before. attributed to Langston Hughes. He talks about the gift of uh, listening eloquently, mm. um, which is such a beautiful image um, to sort of listen eloquently to someone's story, um, honoring it. I mean, and and I think about um, the the politicians are so complicated in so many ways, but the highest compliment I think people can give a politician besides integrity is when they say, like, it really feels like they are listening to you. Even though you're the 300th person in this handshake line, they really want to know who you are and where you come from. And like, and that often is what makes people vote for somebody like they spend those those months and months and months in Iowa and New Hampshire during a primary getting faceTime with people listening learning their names and like tell me about yourself and it's not their platform it's not like it, it's the fact that like people feel heard and like you are gonna take my story and cherish it right and do something with it um, there's something beautiful about that
0: right yeah and th- that capacity to hold people's stories yeah. Some people possess possess that capacity in in like a really, uh, you know, a sort of superhuman way. Um, yeah, I so so what I want to ask you about is I'm, I'm I think of course I think about my time at at UPenn often, and so much of what was challenging for me was awakening to points of tension and fissure that seem to exist between my way of life, my politics, my religious beliefs, and those of my friends or romantic partners. And, um, you know, they're differing ways of life. They're differing politics. They're different religious beliefs. They're different sensibilities. And so I'm wondering if your job as a spiritual leader on campus, and in particular, someone focused on interfaith work and intercultural work, is it largely focused on points of tension Hmm. or would you characterize it differently?
1: I think that uh, there are different contact points for people of different faith traditions and and then there are different depths of the relationship. So, you know, my colleague, Steve Kosher, um, he often talks about the story. He teaches a, a great interfaith service class. And and he um, often we, we describe this kind of like interfaith 101 of like um, one lands on campus and it's this big cosmopolitan place from people all literally all over the world and and the first questions asked are like why do you wear that why don't you eat that um, wow let me tell you about me now and like oh we have some things in common or like that's interesting and like. Let me come in, in, in like a prayer exchange. Let me watch you worship and like see the way you do it. And and you come here too. And like that kind of first contact of interesting, neat. Hey, we can still be friends. And like, there's something nice about that. And we can all, we can all um, have feelings for sports teams and like have a favorite show on TV and show the differences. Right. Great. And for a lot of people, that's enough. And then there's sort of the second level of, I respect you enough that I'd like to learn about. Are you' coming from not just in the neat level but the maybe there's something in there for me you know meditation isn't a part of my tradition let me hear a little bit more about that or wow you know I may not believe cosmically what you believe but that lesson in that story you just shared from your scripture it really has a word that I needed right now for the situation I'm dealing with I'm not necessarily going to convert but like boy that was powerful thank you right. But then there was this sort of like, hard kind of butting heads thing. And, and Steve tells a story around like, where there was a, a Jewish um, student in his class and a Christian student in his class. And they, they had sort of journeyed together for a couple years. And the Christian student was sort of saying what he believed about um, salvation and what happens after we die and the belief that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm and his desire for the world to sort of become Christian. And the Jewish classmate raised his hand and was like, I, I've considered you a friend all these years. Do you want me to convert from Judaism to Christianity? Wow. And do you know what that would mean for my family? And, and are you this whole time, have you been praying for me to like convert? And like, do you disapprove of my faith? And like the really, really hard questions there. Right." And where do you think I'm going if I after I die? Do you think that I, your very good friend, am going to hell? Do you really think that? And if you really did believe that, why haven't you tried to convert me before? Right. Um, like that really hard third level of interfaith stuff. I, I, I don't think it always goes there. I think that's such a loaded, like, ooh, hard conversation. Like, <laughs> you know, are, are we still going to dinner after class? <laughs> 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 Um, but I think there's a there's a realness on that third level I'm not sure it always has to go there Um, and I also think it rarely hits that point on the other hand there is the like some people just see the world differently whether it's what they think their opinions about things happening in the Middle East or their beliefs about um, women's rights and abortion um, or what they think about like drinking and smoke, like that accidentally bump heads. that are hard. You know, I, I don't think that's the majority of the coaching and mediating that we do, but it's absolutely a part of it. And one shouldn't be afraid of that. Those are all teaching moments and all moments that potentially can have beauty um, and love in them.
0: Right. i tell you, you know, you're, your leadership, I feel like, is responsible for bringing me together with so many of my friends in college um, across religious lines, for bringing us together in first in friendship, um, and and that served as such a strong foundation for those later discussions and um, and for those inevitable tensions that that did arise. And I, I remember, in particular, there was. I don't know if you remember this, but I think it was my junior year. There was a um, there was a political protest, which, you know, Penn, Penn it doesn't, it, it, at least when I was there, wasn't a politically fiery place. But it was an unusual sort of um, day, and and there was a political protest in the center of campus. And I I I went fully expecting to be on one side versus the other, and when I got there, I saw all of my Jewish friends on one side. And then I saw my Muslim friends on another side and and one of my Muslim friends turned around and waved. She's one of my close friends. And I was just so, um, I was so sad that I just felt paralyzed in place. And I actually didn't end up joining either side. And I left the protest, at first I was really disappointed in myself and very confused. And then over time I started to feel like, and, and you know, I still don't know what to make of it, but at some point I started to feel like maybe my my work here in the interfaith community on campus has been leading to this point of nonviolence, of of just, of, of paralysis. You know, paralysis, I think we tend to hear that word and we think it's it's a negative. And I looked at the situation at a certain point, and I thought, I've got a deep friendship, and it's reached this point of fissure. And at that point, I'm going to do no harm, and she's going to do no harm. And wouldn't the world be a much better place, you know, if instead of charging forward in violence and in and in tension and in hatred, <laughs> um, we just stood still with each other? And I, I still don't know if that's the answer, but it was a wild experience. Um, and, it, and it stays with me still now.
1: Mm-hmm. You bring tears in my eyes uh, thinking about that. And I, I remember that day very, very clearly.
2: Yeah.
1: It was, I think it was actually just a little bit after the trip to New Orleans. Yeah. And, um, you know, there was one group that essentially a pro Israeli speak out or demonstration. And then there was to like over simplify, kind of a simplified cover pro Palestinian march right. at the same time, essentially the same place. And I remember campus administrators being very very nervous about about this. And so we, you know, we had meetings of like, how are we gonna? And and like at first I was like, these are pin kids. No one's gonna fight. It's not like <laughs> they're, they're not about that life. Like
0: it's no brass knuckles here. <laughs>
1: no brass knuckles this is gonna be <laughs> but like you know still we don't want to sort of be mean you know? and so there were a lot of administrators kind of careful there were literally plainclothes cops out there just in case and i remember a lot of those waves and even a couple hugs people kind of um, kind of like kind of breaking you know breaking rank a little bit to come and grab the hand of someone they went to New Orleans with and it was beautiful. And it, no one's mind changed,
2: right.
1: no one switched sides, but there was a love amidst the difference there yeah. or maybe even because of the difference there, which was so beautiful. And, you know, I, the last podcast you put out, was with some of the folks you went on that trip with. It's mm-hmm. really I cried hearing you all like they're still friends, you know, and like and and probably still believe similar stuff that they believed back then.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's beautiful.
0: Yeah, and I um yeah, it's an it's an emotional memory that day. And um and the friendships we've had, you know, Sara, Summer and I the the two that I had on the podcast before this one, they, um, I do feel like over the years, there's just been this, um, this leaning deeper and deeper into curiosity about, about the differences and, and about each other's traditions. Um, you know, I remember Sarah, I was so stunned by how how gorgeous a person she was. She was pregnant with her, her daughter and she and I went for a walk and, or we went to dinner and then we were walking and she said, this is what I'm thinking of naming the baby, but I want to know what it means in every tradition before I, before I land. I just thought you are, you're a gorgeous human being that you care what this means in Hebrew or what this means in, you know, some other language. And she did, she wanted to make sure that in every language, um, this name would, would evoke beauty. Um, and she, you know, so I, I just think there's, they demonstrate, they in particular demonstrate such curiosity about, the world around them and, and other people's traditions. So I have a lot of respect for them. Um, awesome. Yeah. So, um, you know, we were talking about this before we before we started recording. We had touched on this just when we were catching up, and uh, we talked about how, in your role as the university chaplain, you are leading the community often through times of grief, through memorials, through catastrophe, and. Um, I just I want to know what that's like, if it's very hard to feel love and faith in those moments, or if it's actually much easier. And um, and what are what are some of the teaching moments that you're teaching opportunities that you're finding? You know, what sort of guiding pedagogy do you bring to catastrophe or crisis? You know, and we're in one obviously right now with this pandemic. and with political unrest in this country, or socio-political unrest, so there's a lot going on right now, and I imagine it's weighing heavily on you.
2: Yeah. No, I.
1: I mean, I think about uh, after like the Tree of Life synagogue tragedy, or um, the tragedy in New, New Zealand at the masjid there, and those moments certainly are. Um, Tested my faith. Um, it to use kind of a cliche around it, or, or certainly strained it. Of like, it feels in so many ways like the world is getting uglier and meaner and more violent. Um, and that's actually not true. I think that literally crime is down in our in our country. Don't feel that way. And there is less killing that happens globally. But it it's certainly it's much more present in our minds. And I think I felt that. And it was heavy to kind of grieve with people I love in different traditions. On the flip side though, we've we've tended to gather at the love statue on our campus for these kind of global memorial services. And there's sometimes candlelight vigils and sometimes kind of prayerful speak out kind of things. And to see all the different types of people who came um, after the tree of life or after some of the Jewish cemeteries in her area were um, defaced, um, or after um, George Floyd had been killed and some of the protests, all the different types of people there.
2: Um,
1: there's something amazing about that.
2: Yeah.
1: And so I think a part of the strategy, a part of the, the sort of teaching philosophy, a part of the kind of model that we try to do now is to have broad responses broad kind of diverse responses. One that it shows, hey, we are all in this with you. And um, to kind of use that, that Kenyan, like our destiny, your de- our destinies are tied together. Um, and and I feel your pain um, and I celebrate with you and I agree with you. And so when you have the advisor to our Muslim Student Association crying with rabbis from Hillel and just weeks later, rabbi from Hillel angry about what happened to his Muslim, in his words, brothers and sisters. There's something beautiful that helps with the healing, but there's also a lesson that happens in there for the kind of you know, wide-eyed freshman who hears their campus rabbi refer to his Muslim sisters and brothers and vice versa. And then when they see like our evangelical campus minister come there and cry too, and go to the cemetery to help clean up also, whenever it's like, that's not what we thought you were like. <laughs> like it's, um, that, so that, that's a part of what we're trying to do as opposed to like just the chaplain coming and like doing chaplainy things. It's like, no, we're, we want anyone who wants to come and anyone who can come be here. Further, I think, you know, one of the more moving moments was sort of Dr. Cutman, our university president coming out. And, um, and she's always present, but to sort of hear her, for example, um, the first time I ever heard her speak in Hebrew mm-hmm. after the tree of life synagogue massacre, and it was profound. It was, it was such a, like, like a really beautiful and weighty moment, you know? So I think having kind of big wigs, uh, kind of present too, not just, normal student-facing people, shows like the whole university cares.
0: Right, sort of modeling the behavior that that you're hoping students will adopt as they become citizens of the world. Yeah. For sure. Um, So, you know, I'm I'm curious. I'm thinking about what's been going on in our country and uh, the pain and the upheaval that the Black community has been experiencing. And... I'm wondering if it's hard to live through that, both as a public figure and a spiritual leader who's meant to support other people through difficult times and as you yourself are experiencing your own private pain and and maybe wanting to cocoon even. Um, And you know, do you do you feel do you ever feel the relief and support you're meant to provide for others pointed in your direction? Um you know, and this, this is sort of, I guess, the question for all public servants and for all public figures and for all religious leaders. But um, I guess, do you feel like you have opportunities to be in crisis yourself?
1: Mm. It's a very tender question um, around a tender issue. You know, I think I, I, we had a conversation with our provost, Wendell, who's a good friend of mine, Wendell Pritchett. Um, it's a wonderful leader, and so immediately after the kind of um, uprisings around the country, particularly here in Philly, um, and we were in the midst of kind of social distance still and trying to decide about what we're going to do for the fall semester. This is midsummer, and he, he calls a number of kind of black administrators on this call to talk about, um, in his words, kind of repairing the racial brokenness we're experiencing, and. My response was like, Wendell, like, of course, we will always answer that call. And yet it's important for us to name, like, we're broken too. Right. You know, like I, it is an African-American man who has been stopped in every city I've lived in by the police. Baltimore, Philly, when I was in school in Boston, I got put on the ground by a cop. I've been stopped by the police two times in the last three years here in my suburban neighborhood, I I very easily could have been a hashtag after a death, you know, And, and every time I'm stopped, I think my kids may not have a dad after this, you know? And so I think after seeing the images of George Floyd and then the, you know, hearing about the death of Breonna Taylor and Maude Aubrey, like I had that same anger and rage in me enough to break a window downtown and light some stuff on fire. There's just that much pain and hurt um, and trauma and grief in it. And yet I think a part of the challenge of ministry is uh, rightly or wrongly the perception that, like, I I can't, um, I need to take care of others right now. And... Um, and I can't, I can't break down and cry and scream because I'm literally out here on the street, making sure no one's getting killed, tear gassed, and no one's lighting something else on fire. You know, like we're trying to decide policies for the university. I'm, I'm getting calls from everybody. You know, and like you know, my wife, you uh, got so angry about this the summer, of, you know, my my white colleagues. Calling me So they could unload their anger and their pain and their grief and it's like they're they're crying on the phone with me right. And once it's like that's what I'm here for. I'm the chaplain like I, I I want to be available at any time But I'm just like I am exhausted and like I'm getting the text. Hey, can you talk? I, I really need to talk and I'm like dude, like I'm, I'm limping, but sure, you know, and so I I think this is one of the the hard parts about ministry. This this notion of um, kind of an ordination that sets one apart. Um, there's something unhealthy about that notion of like clergy, rabbi, priest, kind of being different from other people. I think there's something um, scriptural around that of like only certain people kind of can do certain things. Like I, I hear that. I don't want to belittle that, but there is something unhealthy about like we're no longer human. We're no longer one of you. We're not. We no longer feel. We no longer make mistakes. We no longer cry and get nervous and grieve. And I think some people internalize that, like, "Well, you are are. I can go to you. I can dump all my crap on you right now." And then the kind of selfish talk in my heart is like, "Well, where do I go?"
3: Yeah.
1: I, th- I think a part of that comes from the way that religious people often symbolize the divine, and so people feel like God is listening to me if I talk to this this religious official. and like, that's cool. Like, I think that's fine. But God doesn't need anybody to cry to. Therefore, God's ambassador representative also doesn't need anybody to grieve to. Like, that's been hard.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, like, I have a therapist who I go to. I have a spiritual director I go to. Like, there are clergy groups where we kind of vent about stuff. <laughs> and, and So I'm thankful for that. But it's been a hard stretch, you know? And, I, and if I can kind of vent for a minute more, like... So really tired, you No, know, Like I, I, I saw a really really sad post somewhere online, where like an expert in clergy psychology talked about um, her belief that there's going to be a mass exodus of clergy from burnout this year alone. Wow. And I I, don't, I think that's a little strong. I don't think there's going to be a mass exodus, but I have had a lot of conversations with people who are done, who are tired who've had to make it work online, who've had like nine to nine every day, tears and fear and anger, and they're scared about COVID and they're mad about the election and they think America is racist or America's changing too quickly. And like, it's just too much on top of like the roof of the synagogue and like the budget for the parish. And, you know, it's just a lot. And our own families, like, it's a lot for everybody in America right now and every human and there are a lot of people who've lost jobs and a lot of people are losing lives and their health. Not to say that the suffering of clergy is harder at all um, but it's different and it's heavy and I've felt that this year.
0: Yeah. It, um, I think there's a danger in the loneliness that mm. you know, I, I just think loneliness is dangerous in general. I think that, you know, look, there's a reason why Solitary confinement is um, is the worst punishment you can a person can have the worst you know, um, just to hold things all alone and to be all alone in the world is such a such a such a um there's so much heaviness in that and so much, I think danger in it from a mental health standpoint. So um, I definitely. I definitely hear that and and worry about it. You know, I worry about people who are in positions that um, force a sort of loneliness. Um, uh, you know, and I guess on the flip side um, of crisis and that loneliness and, you know, I mean, you're, you're not one of these people who's part of this mass exodus. Um, and so I guess I just wanna know, you know, what's you've been, you've, you've used your chaplaincy in so many, so many different street churches, so many different contexts that are, that are not necessarily houses of worship. Um, And so what for you is the magic that drew you and drew you to and keeps you at campus? Um, Mm -hmm.
3: You
0: know, what, what, what about campus life? um, Is just so, is for you so overwhelmingly beautiful that it overwhelms the the, the loneliness or the difficulty or the, the more chaotic times
1: it's love you know i mean i think it's the it, it's it's the reason why i i could never leave my kids you know like i love them mm. and i feel loved by them uh, through the ups and downs, and I think it's similar with 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 student ministry and pen. Like, I, I really love my students, like, and I, um, and I feel loved back too. Right. But Thanks. like, there's such a a gift of I love journeying with the kind of freshman who's nervous about what class to take, and the the, the junior who's nervous about an internship or sad about a breakup or. Wondering if God exists, or you know, mad that they lost to Princeton, which is rare because we never lose. Really you know. <laughs> um, or my colleagues, who like I just love grabbing lunch with them, like old friends who I've had now for like 30 years. You know, like I, I love them. Or I love being able to be present when you know a colleague um, has a health scare, or you know, like I I love that. And I've again felt very loved by Penn, it's a school that took a chance on me and. Gave me, literally gave me a second shot and has given me a career. And um, I, I, there's a part of me that stays also for the college tuition benefit, which, like, I got two kids in college, you know, that, that kind of golden chain is real too, but that's, that's how I stay. Um, but it helps. That's, that's I, real. <laughs> but it's love, you know, and I, I, you know, to be honest, there have definitely been days where, like, I come home, I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, I, so much of me wants to just be a writer and like, you know grow the like three crops we grow in our tiny little box garden in the back and like and just go to my kids basketball games and you know like i would rather do that on those hard days but every morning i wake up again and love going back to campus or you know it is love logging on to these meetings as tired as i am after like zoom after zoom after phone call after zoom like I, I love these folks. And then the bigger answer of like,
2: I love God,
1: you know, as hellacious as this last year has been, far and away the worst year of of my life and kind of the worst year of everyone who's alive's pretty much, and certainly everyone who's like sub 60, so like life. And yet I still feel God's love like like you know, shafts of light shining through clouds. I still see it. Um, I see it in, you know, like those beautiful moments of doctors and nurses healing people. I see it in white folks marching at Black Lives Matter rallies. You know, like I, I, I see it in friends from different traditions being friends. Like I, there's so much that's beautiful i think coming from the divine um and i see it in this like the fact that i'm still alive and kicking you know like i i, I didn't have to be here but i feel god's love amidst all of this you
0: know? i um, it's so it's so it's so heartening to talk to someone of such deep faith at this time when uh you know and then i wish and well i guess that's what we're doing i I would want to project that faith as far and wide as i possibly could Mm -hmm. um so you know i know we're coming up on well we're way we're way past the time we said we would (laughs) we would be but i could i could talk to you for for much much longer and i have so many more questions but just to close i i like to ask people um if there's a word or a phrase or an idea um that's been important to you in your life and work and, you know, particularly for, you know, uh, you know, whether, whether in, in your love life or your spiritual life or in both, is there a sacred text or an idea that, that just sort of serves as your North star? And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people, you ask me a question, like that and I'll say I have to pick one, you know, so I'm sure there are many. <laughs> there are many, I'm sure.
1: I, on my, um, my inner arm, I have a scripture tattooed that says there is no fear in love. And that has been a phrase I come back to time and time again um, as, as a challenge, um, but also as a reminder that there's no fear in love. And I, I think it's, it should be a compass in a relationship. That if if there's fear, then something's not right. Um, I think it's a compass in like vocational life that if I'm if I'm living in love, I have nothing to be afraid of.
2: Right.
1: And I think that God is love ultimately. Um, and Then like ultimately we're we're safe. We're gonna be okay. And so I think that's in in, in an age where there seemingly a lot to be afraid of you live in love we'll make it
0: right i love that i i can't think of a better way to to end and, and a better educational message either you know um that fear fear is as much a teacher as love is and if there's fear there's um there's something that that uh from which you need to to create some distance and um and 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 lean into love instead so I I I really appreciate that um and I I really I can't thank you enough for talking with me tonight and it just feels like such a such a such a faith-inducing thing to to talk to my teacher and like I said come full circle like this I'm just so grateful and um and I'm grateful for the chance to share your your teaching with a wider audience
1: I'm very very proud of you
0: thanks Chad it was such a joy to talk to you
1: stay in touch okay
0: okay take care